from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Like Effect. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Today we'll look back on some of the big stories from 2023, including the closure of Cardinal Stritch University. We'll hear how students were impacted. This is why Stritch is so special and this is why it's so sad that it's shutting down because people when they come here, they see it's different and they feel they can be different in a place that acts different. And we'll learn about the school's history and the legacy of its founders. They came here to serve the German immigrants that had settled in the Milwaukee area. And so from the very beginning, they were putting themselves at the service of the people of Milwaukee, but their heart was with Christian education. Plus, we'll learn about a hearing test created for Hmong people. All that's coming up on Lake Effect, but first, here are today's headlines. This is Like Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're looking back on some of the big stories we've covered in 2023, including the closure of Cardinal Stritch University. University President Dan Schulz announced in April that the school would be closing after nearly 90 years of educating people in the Milwaukee area. This was to the shock of students, staff, and alumni. Stritch's enrollment plummeted from about 6,000 students in 2010 to just over 1,000 this past year. President Scholl said the situation became unsustainable this school year, and the decision to close was made. One unique feature of Stritch was its high number of international students. WUWM education reporter Emily Files spoke with one of them in April, Galda Han, about her experience at Stritch and her reaction to the news. Dahan came to Milwaukee from Israel in 2019 to study and play basketball at Stritch. Stritch and the faculty here, at least most of them, they not only understand what diversity is, they do everything to make us feel home. And our homes are thousands of miles away. So make someone feel home is a very hard thing to do. So I think... They, I'm not going to talk about other people because, you know, I can talk only of, like, behalf of myself. Stritch made me feel like home. And, you know, I'm Jewish. It's a Catholic university. But after years, I still felt home. And I just found it amazing and incredible that teachers embrace you and support where you come from and support your religion, even if you don't follow what they believe in, right? I found it special. What were your first impressions when you got to Stretch in 2019? Mm -hmm. So, as I said, I didn't know where I'm coming to. Um, I just signed and I came. And my first uh, experience, I walked into Great Hall and I saw this huge cross in front of me. And I just freeze. And I'm like, where did I go? And I really freaked out. Because, you know, I'm, I'm Jewish, as I said, and I, it's, not that, it's not my religion. I respect it, you know, but uh, I didn't know where I'm coming to. So my whole first year, I hided my Judaism because I was afraid of what people are going to say. Of Yeah, it's tough. I actually gave up on all my holidays. I would just wanted to be one of everyone, and I didn't want to expose who I am because I was scared. What were you worried was going to happen? You know, anti-Semitism. People are going to say that I'm, 
you know, you can see on the news how people talk about us, but it's not, every human is different and I can't represent my country. I'm just one, you know, I'm not the president. So I was afraid that people are gonna laugh that I'm Jewish. People are gonna make really bad um, comments or people are not going to respect that. I do want to light candles on Friday evening, but like you can't fire like set fire in the dorm, set fire, like light up in anything in the dorm. So that's illegal. So I gave up on that. And then I want to celebrate Hanukkah. And I didn't know that the JCC is just a block away. So I, I gave up on everything. So when did that change? First of all, I got so much compassion and support from the Jewish community after my sophomore year when I started to realize there is a huge good Jewish community out here and it started to feel amazing and I started to feel more comfortable to expose who I am and that I'm, an, I'm a human and it doesn't matter that I'm Jewish but I think it was more an individual, individual journey more than like what people made me feel because I felt bad about being Jewish but I never needed to because the moment I exposed it not only they loved it, but people supported it. And Stritch told me my junior year, let's do a Hanukkah event on campus. And I was like, what, really? And they're like, yeah, we love diversity. And I think this is why Stritch is so special and this is why it's so sad that it's shutting down because people, when they come here, they see it's different. And they feel they can be different in a place that acts different. And for me, it was amazing. So when did you start really feeling like this was home? I really started to feel Stretch is home for me when I just shared who I am. And then I think my junior year was the peak. So 2021, Sarah Sweeney, I have to say her name because she's just one of the humans that supported my journey so much. Um, she was our international like mom. I would say. She took care of all our visas, F1 visas, and all those kind of really annoying processes. She told me, hey, let's do a Jewish event on campus. And I'm like, Jewish event on campus? This is a Catholic university. She said, let, yeah, let, let's do it. So we partnered with rabbis from the community, and we brought, you guys say Hanukkah, I say Hanukkah, but we brought Hanukkah to streets for the first time ever. And, and when I stood there, and there was a Christmas tree on the right side, the cross above us, and a menorah in the, in the middle, I felt, that's awesome. Like, this is what I call home. It doesn't matter where we come from or what we believe in, like, we all share that same space together. And there was a place for the Christmas tree, there was a place for that cross, and, but there's, there was also a place to that menorah. That's when I, when, where I felt like, wow, not only I belong, but this is awesome. Did a lot of people come to that event? Yeah, they actually did. Um, students came and supported a lot of faculty members and staff that just wanted to learn more about the Judaism and that holiday. And I just felt so blessed that I have um, an institution that supports those, those kind of things. So as I said at the beginning, it's not only they say we support and believe in adverse, in, sorry, not adversity, diversity, but they implement it. It really excites me because I don't take it, um, it's not obvious to me that uh, a place, a Catholic institution 
give us international students and other people the feeling that we belong. And that's why it's sad that it's closed, like closing. It doesn't matter who's to blame. At this time, Cardinal State University is a huge oak tree. Someone chopped it. It doesn't matter who chopped it. This thing is falling down and all the roots will die. But because we are street products, you can say it, because we are part of this legacy, well, we'll take our roots and we'll plant them somewhere else. I love the tree metaphor. That was really good. Yeah. In order to grow, every root need a good environment, right? So you need sun, you need water, and at this point, I don't think Stretch can provide those amazing roots with what it deserves. The chopping is terrible. You know, this, tree, this is an 86-year-old oak tree. The legacy that is left behind this tree is there. Stretch might not physically be here, but the impact, the, the, the people that went to Stretch, like you're part of, you're like, I'm a Stretch wolf. And that's what I feel. I'm a stretch wolf and the legacy will live in me, even if it's not going to be physically here. And I tell all the freshmen and the sophomores and the juniors and even the faculty, take your root and plant it somewhere else. So now you're graduating yes. this spring yes. with double major? Yes, in uh, corporate communication and social media and psychology. Psychology was, clinical psychology was my main major. What are you planning to do after graduation? So, I am, I have to say I'm just lucky enough. I got into grad school at Marquette for a clinical mental health counseling. It's a two-year program, and I'm so excited. If you would ask me four years ago, what am I going to do in four years? First of all, I would say there's no way I'm surviving one semester, like far away from home. And I would not even imagine in my dreams that I would go to Marquette. And that's why, so I'm 26. I came here as a 22 year, year old freshman. And I'm really trying to tell all my friends now, which are 18, 19, 20 years old, that you have no idea what's going to happen, not only tomorrow, but in four years. You know, like we woke up and suddenly one day stretch just is closing. No one would ever imagine that. but. That's the situation, and we need to deal with that. So now, as much as we need to take our roots and plant them somewhere else, I tell them, take your boats and sail somewhere else. And um, you just never know what tomorrow brings. So what has the last week been like after getting the news for you and for just being on campus? It's devastating. And I think we don't have the word devastating in my language, but I think in English it's it's absolutely a very special word. Devastating is something that is just, you feel like everything falls apart. And that's how it seems like. And not only students didn't know how to react, our parents, right, our people that need to take care of us, faculty and teachers also didn't know. So I think, as I said before, it doesn't matter, I'm not looking for, to blame someone. It doesn't matter, but now we have a situation and we need to deal with it and tears and, and stress and teachers cry on students, students cry on teachers. It's just this whole sinking boats, you know?
and uh, I, I don't know who I shouted on. I didn't mean to shout at her. I didn't know what was her position, but I told her, who is going to pick up the tears in the dorms? Are you picking them up? I am picking them up. I am a resident assistant. My door is open for people who want to come and talk. So I told them, at least give them hope that this is, it will be okay. And I think that there was so much miscommunication and it just, it was hard. Gal Dahan is one of the last students to graduate from Cardinal Stritch University, which closed for good in May this year. She spoke with WUWM education reporter, Emily Files. The announcement of the closure of Cardinal Stritch University had alumni, like myself, reflecting on what it means to have an institution like this come to an end. To better appreciate how Cardinal Stritch grew to be one of the largest Franciscan institutions of higher education in North America, I went to the archives on campus to meet Sarah Wolfel, the Cardinal Stritch University historian. She says that in order to understand the school and its guiding principles, we have to go further back than when it was founded in 1937. Any history of Cardinal Street University has to start with the sisters. And so I'm going to go well before 1937 to 1849. And that's when the founders of the sisters first stepped foot in Milwaukee. They came from Bavaria. Um, They were invited by the bishop of the Diocese of Milwaukee, which was fairly new at the time. And they came here um, to serve the German immigrants that had settled in the Milwaukee area. And so from the very beginning, They were putting themselves at the service of the people of Milwaukee, but their heart was with Christian education. And so they had really hoped that they could start a congregation of religious sisters here and eventually branch out into education. And that's that's something they eventually did, but they had to settle and they had to um, get their footing first. And they were at the service of the St. Francis de Sales Seminary when it was brand new. So it took them a while to get to education, but as we all know by their history, they not only got to serve in education, but have affected thousands upon thousands of people all over the world because of that. It's in the name, there's the Sisters of St. Francis of Assisi. And when this was first founded, it was called St. Clair College. So can you briefly go over who were St. Francis and St. Clair, and of course the Franciscan values that Cardinal Stritch is centered upon? Well, uh, the Sisters of St. Francis of Assisi were actually the first vowed Franciscan women to be established in the United States. And so from the very beginning, those Franciscan roots were at the heart of who they were. Uh, St. Francis of Assisi, he started in in a very humble way, just wanting to live in in the the poverty that would allow him to better serve and and know God. It was kind of a radical approach to service, and especially because he came from a wealthy family, it shocked people the way that he served. So little by little, more and more men followed him, and St. Clair was one of the women, the first women to follow him. She also left her wealthy family in order to embrace this life of poverty and service. And um, so they are giants in the Franciscan tradition, and the sisters recognized that. And so when it came time to found their own college, they actually founded St. Clair Junior College in 1932, which is the forerunner to St. Clair College in 1937. So they honored her with that with that naming. 
And can we go over those four Franciscan values? Students who go here, they're required to take Franciscan-infused core classes just to get familiar with it, but also each year the university picks a value to highlight each year. What are they? Well, this year, we're, um, our value is compassion, which actually fits very well in this time. We're, we're seeing a lot of compassion during this time. Creating a caring community is another one of them. Peacemaking and reverencing all creation. The sisters are at the heart of that. They articulated those values for the first time in the 1980s because they recognized that the Sisters of St. Francis, who used to be in all areas of the university as faculty, as staff, you couldn't go anywhere without encountering a sister. Their numbers were starting to diminish in the 1980s. So they saw that it was really important to articulate those values so that the people who were left, the lay people who would be working alongside them, could understand what was at the heart of this university from the very beginning and carry that on. And to this day, we have one sister of St. Francis of Assisi still working here, but we have hundreds, thousands of people who can articulate these values and are living them out in our community today. You mentioned when this college was first formed, you could scarcely go anywhere without encountering a sister. Can you speak a little bit more upon those early years from Stretch when it was first founded? The, the reason it was founded is because the sisters, you know, they, they were going into education and they were going into schools, but they didn't have proper teacher training. And so they would do the training at their convent. Um, eventually they founded something called um, St. Catherine's Normal School, which is kind of a loose forerunner stretch because they were trying to form their sisters because there was such a demand for teachers at the time and they needed to get them out into the schools, but you know they wanted them to be properly trained. So eventually they started to send them to colleges and universities around the state, around the country, so they could get advanced degrees and methods. But around 1932, there was an unusually large number of sisters who needed training. And so they were looking for ways to get all of them the training that they needed without having to pay out the, the money for tuition at other schools. And so one of our sisters who was in charge of this, she actually went to the archbishop at the time, and that was Samuel Stritch. And she said, I don't know what to do. We have all these sisters that need training, and we don't have enough money you know, to send them out. And so he said, you know, sister, your congregation is large enough now. You can actually start your own college. And so it was at his urging that um, the school actually started in 1932 as a teacher training college just for the Sisters of St. Francis of Assisi. It quickly changed. They quickly started to embrace um, other religious orders and bring them in. And by 1946, they started to admit lay women. So it quickly took shape. It started as something very simple and very practical, and it didn't take long before it began to serve a wider population. You mentioned Archbishop Stretch. So in 1946, the school was also renamed after him, uh, Samuel Alphonsus Stretch. So can you share a little bit more about him and what his local impact was? Well, he was the Archbishop here before he was then called to be the Archbishop of Chicago, the Archdiocese of Chicago, where he was then um, named Cardinal. So that's where the name Cardinal comes from here. And I think he was called sometimes the Archbishop of Charity because he would say, you know, as long as I have two pennies in my hand, one belongs to the poor. So he just really had a heart for people in need. And this was especially during the time that Stritch was founded during the Great Depression. You know, that really resonated with the sisters because there was a lot of hardship around. There were a lot of people in need. So because he was such an advocate for education as well, 
the sisters in 1946 had approached him and asked him whether they could name the school for him. And at that time, it was not just Cardinal Stritch College, it was called the Cardinal Stritch College. But he said, yes, as long as you always serve people in need. He wouldn't have wanted his name on a school that didn't have that at its heart. And I think you can trace our whole history, and you can see that that is still very much how we operate today. So we are here in the archives. Can you explain kind of what's all housed in here? It's a lot of our records, our academic records, our departmental records. There's also you know, lots of photographs, old publications. Um, one of my favorite things is these old newspapers that we have. We had this award-winning publication from the late 40s to sometime in the 80s, and um, it was all student-run. So, and it's just, it's their student voices just coming out of those newspapers. We also have some artifacts from Cardinal Stritch himself. We have trophies and, you know, just knickknacks and um, just, it's, you, you pretty much can feel the history down here. And Sister Margaret, who built this, did a beautiful job of having both the practical side of things uh, right alongside just some very inviting spaces. Um, the sisters are, are um, actually in charge of not just Cardinal Stritch University, they have other corporate ministries as well. So their archives have little pieces of all these different ministries that they run. So what's beautiful about Cardinal Stritch University is a lot of their ministries kind of converged here. One thing I haven't mentioned is that throughout our history with the sisters being here, they weren't just holding space, they were like, they were innovating things, they were creating curriculum around special education. We had one of the first uh, reading clinics in the Midwest was formed here, and it was because our sisters were at the cutting edge of trying to teach people to read. From right around the turn of the century, right around 1900, they had formed what is now St. Colettes of Wisconsin. So they, right, right from the beginning, they understood that there were people with special challenges that needed special ways to learn. So the sisters have their own beautiful history, and. Fortunately, Cardinal Stritch University kind of served as a way for them to innovate and serve those other ministries at the same time. That's one major impact, and this school was known for its education program, amongst many other things. What else stands out to you about the ways that the sisters not only innovated, but conducted themselves and cemented a unique place in the field of higher education? Yeah, I can name a whole bunch of sisters who are known on a national or international level when they would innovate that curriculum, a lot of times they would share it. This became a place that people would come to learn special education methods so they could take them to the world. So it's just, uh, when you think about the impact of that, it's so far reaching. Um, I think if you would talk to a lot of the residential students who knew them, the sisters and the students often lived in common ways or common spaces, they'd share meals together. So in addition to these, women wanting to form these younger women, you know, to be leaders in society and to um, form them for their careers. They also had these mothering hearts for them. So I think their legacy is going to be that they put everything that they had into this place. One thing I haven't mentioned is that the sisters uh, contributed their salaries back to Stritch. They didn't take salaries. So it's called contributed services. And they actually in the year 1968 to 69, their contributed services totaled $430,000. So it was 31% of the college's budget at the time. That was their contributed services because they knew that this ministry was important 
And so they gave everything that they had. You hear stories all the time of the sister who, with her PhD, would be teaching in the classroom during the day. And at night, she'd be running the switchboard, or she wouldn't be afraid to you know, help out in the kitchen or clean the bathrooms. They did not know the limits of hierarchy. They didn't, they didn't see it that way. This was their school, and they all came ready to serve. So they just have beautiful hearts, and they're still on the south side of Milwaukee. They, they're so pleased with what Cardinal Street University has meant to the community. So even at this closing, they're you know, sad, but they're celebrating it as opposed to mourning it because they just know what it has meant to people. Sarah Wolfel was the university historian at Cardinal Stritch. You can find all of our reporting on the school's closure at wuwm.com. Did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Just search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcast to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. Later in the show, we'll head to Karen Supermarket on Milwaukee's south side and learn what it means for Myanmar refugees living in the city. But first, we'll tell you about the first-of-its-kind hearing test developed for Hmong speakers and the difference it's made in healthcare. That's coming up on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. You're listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Wisconsin is home to the third largest Hmong population in the U.S. As the community ages, hearing loss is becoming a big problem. But few clinics are equipped to treat Hmong-speaking patients, leading to a health disparity in their care. Part of a hearing evaluation is a word recognition test, which shows when speech is loud enough for someone to understand. The test only comes in the most common languages, like English and Spanish. If the test isn't available in someone's language, they don't get that test. Over the last few years, researchers at UW-Madison have developed the first Hmong word recognition test. WUWM's Lena Tran spoke to the people behind the test this summer. First, she speaks with Mai Chu Lor, a UW-Madison assistant professor of nursing who led the project. The development of the test really took place because of my father. <laughs> he uh, had hearing loss since she was a child. So when I was doing a postdoc at Columbia University, I would come back home frequently. And family members were telling me that my father's hearing has declined significantly because he wasn't responding to conversations, even though he did have a hearing aid. And I have brought him in to see his doctor through the ENT clinic here at UW. And in conversation with his doctor, he learned that I was a nurse researcher and that I was coming back to Madison, UW-Madison here. And he has suggested that we should collaborate. So it was really through his motivation and support that I had pulled together a team of uh, him with audiologists and linguists. Just more broadly, could you talk about some of the health needs for the Hmong population. I also understand that the language is primarily oral, like the written language isn't used by a lot of people. From our prior qualitative study that we actually did to get a better understanding of what are the hearing needs in the Hmong community, what we've learned is that due to language barriers, 
and the cultural stigma that comes with hearing loss, not a lot of Hmong people are getting care for hearing. And so that's been a challenge. And then on top of that, you know, even getting hearing care, you know, with the lack of culturally and linguistically appropriate tests for Hmong patients, they're not getting comprehensive, equitable care, right? Things are done based on the paratone test, which is the test that have them listen to different frequency of tone or sounds. You know, the care that they're getting is not as up to par. And so with my father's story, because of his declined in hearing, there was conversation about whether or not he would be a potential candidate for cochlear implant. And we couldn't proceed because there isn't the word recognition test. And so that was kind of the motive for why we did this study. And then we learned that it, there are a lot of Hmong patients who are also in the same kind of boat. For people that don't have access to a word recognition test, you mentioned this tonal test. Can you talk about like the limitations of that, if that's all that's available for someone? To my understanding, the peritone test, it's really just a test that looks at frequency of hearing loss. How much sound can they hear versus words, right? Words that are clear, are they able to repeat? That's being missed. And so the only adjustment that audiologists would be able to do with the peritone test is just to help patients hear frequency, like how loud something is versus clarity. So what is a word recognition test? What does that usually entail? Yeah, a word recognition test is a test that encompasses words that are phonetically balanced and are familiar. In the English word list, it's between 20 to 50 words, depending on what audiologists choose. It's been validated. And these are normal words that that English-speaking patients would hear and use. So they're like daily words like bat, ball, right? And so for the Hmong, it's the same kind of concept where we would find phonetically balanced Hmong familiar terms to be used with Hmong patients. And then for us to make sure that it actually does work, we validate it with the community here in Dane County. Okay. And so if it's like a test of like 50 words, are they like played for someone? And then I guess, what are they saying? Like, yes, I can identify these different words or... It's digitally recorded. It would be played. We went through a really rigorous process of selecting members from the community who have very clear pronunciation and fluency in the Hmong language to record these 50 words. And actually we have four lists of 50 words. So let's say the word is cat, but then the patient heard it as bat. That's incorrect. So different levels of hearing will allow them to hear the word differently. So if they have true good hearing, they should be able to hear the word as exactly as it is. Part of the word list is to really use familiar day-to-day terms that people would understand. And then the testing of the word list is to really figure out whether or not they could recognize these words, right? To help audiologists assess how to adjust hearing assessment, whether or not they're like, you know, patients are a candidate for cochlear implants, really to inform treatment. And what's currently in practice for the Hmong population is that they don't get any of that, which is part of comprehensive standard of care for, you know, English speaking patients. And for people that are Hmong speakers, what have you observed, I guess, in terms of 
their reception to the test or, you know, it making them more comfortable in a healthcare space. People were so excited about this project. And we had so many people who were interested in participating in this initially because this is a validation study. We only included normal hearing people. So that's why we had then built in a second study to say, hey, you know, we're not going to like exclude you. But, you know, after we validated this, we will bring you back. My goal is to get it to clinical settings so that Hmong speaking individuals could start using it and get better care. And so I'm currently working with the director of audiology through our UW Health system here to implement this and test its feasibility. So Hmong community members are very excited because we've not had anything for the community that's of the Hmong language. And we have an aging population that's coming through. You're listening to Lake Effect. I'm WUWM's Lena Tran. That was Mai Chu Lor talking about a project she led to help create a hearing test for Hmong speakers. Now we'll hear from Cal Lee Lor, a native Hmong speaker who also worked on the project. So what was your relationship with Hmong, I guess, as a language before you got involved with this project? Was this something that you grew up speaking, like hearing the house that you were fluent in or, or not so much? What, how would you have described that? So obviously, uh, I am Hmong and I grew up Hmong and speaking Hmong in the household. My parents don't speak English all too well. So uh, me and my siblings, we grew up speaking Hmong in the household. Obviously, I think it's, I think a lot of immigrant families experience this kind of linguistic erasure and cultural erasure as you kind of move and assimilate to different, um, to the environment that you're surrounded in. I honestly got interested in linguistics com- completely by accident because in my ha- in, in my family because my parents have like a very I guess a uh, diverse background uh, like they were born in Laos live like kind of grew up in Thailand in the refugee camp and then now they're in the United States so with all of those influences I grew up kind of hearing a lot of different languages in the household mm. not that my parents spoke them all the time but but it was just because they grew up in these places so they were very very much into these types of music or 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 mm-hmm. film or TV shows. And so for me, it was really just growing up watching all of these things and all these different languages. And I think as I grew up, I language just started connecting for me in different ways. And I kind of started to to explore that curiosity. It kind of made me um sad because I I I realized how much of of our identity is also linked with language and culture as that kind of goes away. Cause I have cousins who are the same age as me. And um, most of, some of them don't, don't, don't really speak Hmong at all. Mm-hmm. And it always made me curious how they communicate with their parents in the household when I know their parents' English isn't that great either. And I think seeing that disconnect and even within myself, you know, not really, even noticing just the, the the small parts of of the disconnect with my own parents and the language, I think really strengthened my my desire to like reconnect with it again, and really in this case like dissecting it even even more than what we normally would do on a on a daily basis with the language that we do speak. That's great. Um, 
yeah, my mom is Thai and my dad's Vietnamese and I don't really speak either language. And kind of what you were saying about your cousins earlier, there's like a lot of complicated feelings around that. And so I'm curious what you meant when you were talking about the disconnections that you started to observe between yourself and your parents over language. What did that feel like or look like for you? I think as someone who has studied linguistics and, and realizing just how how deeply it embedded it is in, in terms of culture. I think just not really, not, I think not being able to find the words to communicate with my parents, I guess the best way I could say would be in, in, in a healthy, in a healthy way. I think, you know, when you're, when your vocabulary is limited, you tend to just reach for what is the closest. And even then it doesn't quite describe how you feel or how you think. And that leaves a lot of room for misunderstandings. That leaves a lot of room for, I guess, just pain and hurt as well too. So just not being able to express myself in a way that I wish I could, because doing it in English is is not useful if they don't understand, and doing it among is not useful if I can't fully, I can't if I can't fully utter all the words that I want to. Mm-hmm. And even when they're talking to me, like they can say stuff, and I'm like, I I got like half of that. Like I don't know what the other half means, or I don't know what that word means, or I don't know what this expression means. Mm-hmm. And so I think sometimes just finding. The, the the frustration of not simply being able to communicate with someone that not only do I live with and whom I love, but we're supposed to speak the same language and, and yet we're still finding this disconnect. Like something is just not clicking here. Yeah, yeah. So you're in college and summer before senior year. Tell me about how you got involved with this project. Uh, well, I was actually in one of um, Lindsay Walter, Dr. Lindsay Walter's um, classes at the time. Class kind of was just like a very normal linguistics class. I, I, I know that Lindsay Walter, I just really got an email from her and she just told me about this project. And she said she's looking to find two students, linguistics students, who obviously also have like a Hmong language background mm-hmm. um, to kind of help like do this research project. And she said she was very interested in asking myself and then Micey as well if we were both interested and we both were we both were very much interested so we both said yes I I guess I'm curious what like the process looked like for you Lindsay mentioned that you looked at some reference works among stories I'm curious what those stories were about tell me what that summer work looked like when we first started, Professor Walter was had given us a lot of reference articles on kind of just like how previous uh, lists were were created and just kind of some general background information articles that we read. The thing with that is a lot of them, especially obviously since we're in the United States, a lot of them were done using obviously English as, as a reference for these lists. But the big difference between doing one for among word lists as well versus the English one is a lot of like the foundation has already been created for for English where like for the Hmong language there was pretty much nothing so basically normally for an English one you have all these databases that that basically contain like every every single possible English word Mm -hmm. that exists and it basically calculates the repetition of consonants and vowels and Obviously, in this case for Hmong, it would it would account for tones as well. 
But with all of that, you were able to kind of compile a, a list that closely reflects the amount of occurrences in terms of mm-hmm. and vowels. So this is where our storybooks and our folklore and children's books all kind of came into play. We had to create our own word bank database to pull from. And that's basically what these books were. You know, we compiled a bunch of different Hmong folklore and folktales, Hmong kids books, anything that we could really find in text. And then we had to extract all the text from all of these books and stories and then put them into essentially what is an Excel spreadsheet. But once we were able to kind of extract these words from these texts, we were able to kind of break these words up into its parts and then count the frequency of how much these consonants and sounds and vowels and tones occurred. Mm-hmm. And then once we could figure out the frequency of, of these occurrences, we could create a list based on those. That's so cool. What did your parents make of your involvement? Did you share the project with them? And what did they think about it? I did. But I think, you know, going back to like that disconnect part is that I don't think they fully understood the idea of the research project. And so I think it was like a little bit hard to explain the process. And as weird as that sounds, because the thing is, when that project came to me, it kind of came at a really, really good time where I felt like I was knowledgeable enough to the extent that I could understand how like breaking down the linguistics aspect of it, but also really appreciated it because my father also was actually like struggling with hearing loss at the time. Um, And he still is to this day. And he is still like any typical Asian man, very resistant in using his hearing aids. Uh Um, (laughs) It's a, it's a, it's a daily battle to get him to, to wear those. So for me, I was able to appreciate on 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 several different levels because I was like, like seeing my dad not being able to hear well every day and not even really being able to have basic conversations with people because if they talk to him, he either doesn't, he can't hear so he misunderstands what they're asking a lot or he just doesn't respond to them. Mm-hmm. And I actually went to one of his hearing tests once. And obviously at the time, like the hearing test I went to just used like beeping sounds, um, not actual words. But just seeing that and being like, wow, yeah, if if they were doing like a hearing test that required them to use words, for me, it was a matter of like, is is he hearing but not understanding or is he not hearing at all? And when yeah. you can't pinpoint that problem, you can't find a solution for the actual problem you're trying to to find. That was WUWM's Lena Tran speaking with two members of the team behind the Hmong hearing test. She spoke with Mai Chu Lor, a UW-Madison assistant professor of nursing, and Kao Lee Lor, a native Hmong speaker and member of the linguistics team. Milwaukee is home to one of the largest communities of Myanmar refugees in the U.S. Next, we'll explore what one local supermarket is bringing to the community. Keep listening to Lake Effect on Milwaukee's NPR. This is Like Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. Milwaukee has become home to a growing community of refugees from Myanmar, formerly known as Burma. 
Armed conflicts have been ravaging the nation for more than seven decades, often dividing people along ethnic lines. Milwaukee is thought to have the United States' largest community of Rohingya, a Muslim minority from Myanmar that's faced persecution and an ongoing genocide in their home country. Other groups, like Bernese and Karen, have faced similar persecution during this time of unrest. That was the case for Tupaw's family, which fled to a Thai refugee camp before making their way to the U.S. Paw is the owner of Karen Supermarket on Milwaukee's south side, a grocery store and meeting place for people in the community. Lake Effect's Joy Powers visited the supermarket to learn more about it. Two, thank you so much for chatting mm -hmm. with me. Uh, so you said you really just started over here about two, three months ago. Yeah, I started on around March 7th, I believe, yeah, of this year. But you've lived in Milwaukee for a while now. Uh-huh, yeah, I have lived in Milwaukee since uh, 2018. Mm -hmm. Where did you move from? Originally, like uh, I was born in Thailand refugee camp, and then I grew up there. Uh, we moved to uh, American back in 2010. The first states I was living in was Dallas, Texas, and then after like a few years, we moved to Iowa, and then during the years of 2018, I moved here. What brought you to Milwaukee specifically? Um, not really sure. Just I think just um, families, yeah. It seems like there's a, a growing community here in Milwaukee. Right. Uh, has that been helpful compared to other states? You said you lived in Iowa, you, you lived uh, in... Yeah, it's pretty helpful, you know, open up a grocery store, have your own community support you. It's a, like a, a plus. Uh, and they like also want to make sure that they have what they need, what they're looking for. But yeah, I have seen a lot, lately we have a lot of Rohingya community, current community coming in, yeah. So what is, uh, for people who won't know, what is the difference between the Korean community, the, the Rohingya community, the Burmese community? Oh, okay, yeah. So, like, we have, like, I'm not really sure myself. Like, <laughs> sure. uh, I don't know the history, but we have, like, all kind of ethnic group who live in a refugee camp. So, like, my parents, uh, they originally from Burma, but due to the civil war between Burma and Korean, uh, then uh, they flee to Thailand back in, I think, 19... 95 or 1994 and I was both there in 1998 in the refugee camp so a lot of like ethnic group moved to the refugee camps due to the war and they just want a little bit of freedom and stuff like that so this is a very diverse group of people right. I think uh -huh. we tend to uh, lump everyone into right. one yeah. kind of mm -hmm. group but there are so many different folks yes it is yeah we have all but most of us like understand the Burmese language so we can kind of communicate with that well that's good news right <laughs> uh, when you're trying to cater to what is a very diverse group of people how do you do that with a grocery store? Because I'm sure everybody has slightly different preferences for what they want to eat, what they right. want to eat. Yeah, so um, we just kind of like get feedback from customer. We ask like, you know, whatever, what kind of things they're looking for. Sometimes like they will come in, show me a picture, and they'll just keep a photo of it, ask, you know, ask uh, where I could get those. And then sometimes just bring in little by little and then, yeah. Now I notice you sell both clothing here and mm -hmm. food. Uh, as I'm looking at the clothing, what am I looking at? Is is so, this? Yeah, these are. Uh, that's the current flag over there. These are men traditions shirts, and those are women traditional um, dress, clothing, shirts, 
but we usually like we don't really wear it day to day uh, in these generations but for like my parents and other the older generation they do kind of wear this every day but, like for us we wear we wear them like during the special day like uh, revolutionary days on like Sunday for going to church and stuff like that yeah. sure mm-hmm. So as I'm looking around the store, you have so many things from uh, different countries, different right. places. Mm-hmm. What are some of the items that you find people asking for most, where they're like, I just can't find this? Right, yeah, we have a lot of products that people would ask for, especially from Thailand. Uh, it's hard to get, you know, like, you, it's just so hard to find those stuff. Sometimes they'll just ask for, like, because I think they just haven't had them for a long time. Sometimes veggies, sometimes will come to fruits that they haven't been eating for a long time, so they will kind of like export those, yeah. Uh, I've noticed, uh, so I, I live not far from here, so I've mm-hmm. come a few times, I think before you owned it as well. Right. Um, and I've noticed that recently, it seems mm-hmm. like you've started doing more hot food. Right, yeah, so it's more of like a date, daily to dates. So we make them like daily. Those are like more of Burmese, Koreans, like everyday uh, like dessert things. So we have like some noodles, some um, sticky rice. Yeah, we just make kind of just a little bit of a menu. It, it seems like a nice gathering place for people. Have you found more people are coming to the store and, and staying and sitting down and, you know, having a space yeah so like it's more kind of it's a grocery store but it's also like family friends friendly like some type of people just come in ask to you know um have a seat waiting for whoever gonna pick them up sometimes they just come and have a chat yeah very friendly family store i guess what do you see as you look around uh the growing burmese karen rohingya community mm-hmm. what do you see as as your space inside of that community I have a lot of current community right now coming in, but I don't see a lot of like uh, Burmese, Chains, Karini, or Rohingya yet. So maybe they'll come in more often. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything that you would say to people who uh, are, are interested in checking out the space, interested in checking out the grocery store, uh, but may not be as familiar with the cuisine? Or- oh yeah, mm-hmm. I have a lot of like, for like people from American and whoever, like they will come and then I'll kind of like show them around if they want. And sometimes they're looking for a specific product. They'll just show me a picture and they will walk with, I will walk them through. So yeah, uh, I think communication is a big key if you want to like kind of get into like more with the diversity. So yeah, the communications, being friendly, yeah. All right, well, uh, thank you so much for chatting with me. Sure, thank you. Two Paws, the owner of Karen Supermarket at 27th and National on Milwaukee's South Side. She spoke with Lake Effect's Joy Powers back in May. And that's Lake Effect for today. I'm Audrey Nowakowski. If you've missed any of today's conversations or you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll tell you about Everywhere is Queer, a worldwide map showing where you can find queer-owned businesses. Plus, a local TikToker known as the Trans Handyman shares how she helps people with home repair. That's tomorrow at noon on Lake Effect, right here on listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. NPR.